Thus far in our study of Matthew's Gospel, we've seen that it was foretold that the king of the Jews would be born in Bethlehem, exiled in Egypt, revenged in Ramah, and nurtured in Nazareth. That was our Easter morning message, a little unusual for Easter morning, but important for understanding of who Jesus is and why he came to earth. Well, today we want to note that the last two verses of the last book of the Old Testament foretold the one who was coming to prepare the way for the king that made his appearance 2,000 years ago. The Bible is amazingly woven together, and the prophecies stagger the imagination as we see how God is at work throughout time and throughout history, preparing for us eternal life. And in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, we read the last two verses of the Old Testament now. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. That is the final word from the Old Testament prophets. And for 400 years there was silence. And then God sent another prophet in the spirit and power of Elijah, who the angel told Zacharias when announcing to him that his wife would bear him a son and he would name him John, would go as a forerunner to the Messiah to turn the hearts of fathers back to their children, and the disobedient to the attitude of righteousness, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Well, that day, spoken of by Malachi, would be either great or terrible, depending on whether or not the people were prepared for it. And that was the job of the prophet to get them ready. And John did that by showing us how to be pleasing to our Heavenly Father through three things that we're familiar with. Through confession, through repentance, and through baptism. An interesting trinity of things here we find in the ministry of John the Baptist. And in chapter 3 now, in Matthew's Gospel, we meet the man who prepared the people to meet the Lord by first leading them to confess their sins. And it wasn't easy for him. It's not easy for us today. Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Now in those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness, saying, Repent! For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now, John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea, and all the district around the Jordan, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. Now, there's a gap of nearly 30 years between chapter 2 and chapter 3 of Matthew's Gospel. During that time, Jesus grew up in Nazareth, worked as a carpenter, cared for his mother and younger brothers and sisters, and experienced the trials and temptations of life that we all face. His cousin John was also being prepared by God to fulfill the role he would play. And it was in those days, when they were both about 30 years old, that John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And his message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, he was fulfilling not only the prophecy of Malachi, but the prophecy of Isaiah as well. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. Let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged territory a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. As the workman who traveled before the king to make the road ready for him, and as Rose told me this week, roads were being prepared for President Obama's visit to Jamaica last week, so John was sent to prepare the hearts of God's people for the coming coming king. And no one would have missed the fact that he was indeed sent in the spirit and power of Elijah. His appearance and dress and life in the wilderness were very similar. And his confrontational call to repent was the same. People came from all around, all around the country to hear and to see this prophet of God. And they responded to his message by confessing their sins. And that is where we have to start. You know, until a man is willing to acknowledge his sin, he can never be pleasing to his heavenly Father. For as Paul noted in Romans 3.23, we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have all violated our relationship with our Heavenly Father. We have disappointed Him. And to please Him, we need to acknowledge that fact. As the Apostle John declared in 1 John 1.8, If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. And the truth is not in us. Sin is not a popular word. We redefine our behaviors constantly. 
It's essential that we acknowledge what we do is a sin against God. In that psalm we read this morning, I find it so interesting that, that David is confessing his sin before God. Now, he had sinned against Bathsheba. He had sinned against Bathsheba's husband. But when he prayed, he said, against you and you only have I sinned. Now, was he ignoring what he had done to others? No. He was saying, the horrible things I do in life affect my relationship with you. And it's sin in your eyes. You're the one I sinned against. David acknowledged that. Acknowledged that. We have to confess our sin. If we don't, we'll never deal with it. If we try to ignore it or hide it or excuse it or redefine it, it will destroy us. And it will alienate us from our Heavenly Father. David knew the effects of unconfessed sin. In Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4, he wrote, When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long, for day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Depression is at an all-time high. Could some of it be a result of God's hand on people trying to get them to understand that they're living lives that are alienated from their Creator? I'm not saying all, but I think a good part of it is tied to our relationship to God. Unconfessed sin can destroy us. I remember years ago, I visited someone in the hospital. They were in the psych ward for behaviors that society had judged as inappropriate. They weren't very encouraged when I prayed for them to acknowledge their sin. They thought I was being lacking in compassion. Well, I'm sure there were many who thought John lacked compassion. And he called for repentance. But repentance is key. Confession of sin is key to forgiveness. The good news is not good news until we've heard the bad news. So there is a place there is a place for judgment. But David acknowledged what sin was doing to him. And so what did he do? Just read on. He says, I acknowledged my sin to thee, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and thou didst forgive the guilt of my sin. The guilt was real. And he knew it. He acknowledged his sin. He quit trying to hide his iniquity. He confessed his transgressions to the Lord and he found forgiveness. God has promised to do the same for us. As we read on in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, we're told if we confess, I'm verse 9, we're told if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins 
and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, this is written to Christians to assure us that the cleansing made possible by Christ's sacrifice is maintained by, by faith and the confession of sin. Our forgiveness is dependent upon a continued relationship with our Heavenly Father. And if we continue to confess our need for cleansing, He will continue to forgive us our sin. That confession, however, must be more than just a verbal acknowledgement of sin. It must also lead to a change in our behavior. It must lead to repentance. Verses 7 through 12. Speaking of John. Now, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. And the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, and his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. When the self-righteous religious leaders of the day came to John, he was skeptical of their motives. Now, he didn't refuse to baptize them, but he didn't pull any punches when it came to confronting them with their sin. He called them a brood of vipers, something Jesus would later call them as well. And he suggested in imagery that they were like animals running to escape a brush fire in the desert. You know, just in case John was right, they would go through the motions. They would allow themselves to be baptized as a kind of fire insurance. But just saying the right thing, or doing the right thing, or even belonging to the right religious body isn't enough. God is not impressed with empty words. A baptismal certificate isn't a ticket to heaven. And regular religious involvement or religious heritage is no guarantee that you are an adopted child of God. Now, God doesn't judge a tree by its roots. He judges it by its fruit. If we say we have repented, we must bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. Repentance is more than just sorrow for sin. Repentance is not just saying, I'm sorry. Repentance is a change of mind that results in a change. Okay? 
It's a change of mind that results in a change. It's acknowledging that you're going the wrong way and then turning around so you can head the other way. In Acts 3.19, we read, Repent, therefore, and return, that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Repentance is, is, is acknowledging that you've been walking away from God and making the decision to return to God. And as you come back into the presence of God, your behavior will change. If it doesn't, you've not repented. And you'll be judged accordingly. John's role was to call people to repentance. The one who was to follow him would bring the power to change. The Holy Spirit. And he would bring judgment, fire, to those who refused to change. And his judgment will be thorough. Like someone winnowing grain, tossing it into the air, so that the wind will separate the chaff from the grain, he will judge mankind. The good grain will be gathered into his barn, and the chaff will be burned with unquenchable fire. God will judge. Christ will judge. We've got a choice to make. Either we please God or we don't. So how do we know? Again, how do we know? Can we know now if we're pleasing God or not? Can we know now how we will be judged on that day? Is judgment day a day of, of, of unknown fear? doesn't have to be. It can be a great day instead of a terrible day. A day of celebration. A day of reward. A day of hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. What an amazing day that will be. We can know now whether we're pleasing our Heavenly Father. That's a little three-step process that we see played out in the ministry of John as well as taught to us in the book of Acts. We please our Heavenly Father through confession, through repentance, and through baptism. Three done. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus, answering, said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. And after being baptized, Jesus went up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and coming upon him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom 
I'm well pleased. John was calling the Jews not only to repentance, but also to baptism. And this was something new for a prophet. We don't find prophets in the Old Testament calling people to baptism. Somewhere during the 400 years between the close of the Old Testament and the coming of Christ, the Jews had started baptizing, immersing Gentile converts into Judaism. It was a ceremonial cleansing through which the Gentiles acknowledged their sinfulness and sought to be cleansed. It was a beautiful ceremony. We don't know exactly when it started or who started it. But by the time of Christ, it had become a very common practice among the Jews. Because the Jews recognized Gentiles as being unclean. John changed the message a bit. He spoke to the Jews. And he said, you too need to be cleansed from your sin. Just because you have a relationship historically with God doesn't mean you're right with God. You need to be cleansed as well. And the baptism he offered them was a way for them to acknowledge their sin and their need for cleansing. And they were coming. And in the midst of it all, Jesus came to John. And when he came and said he wanted to baptize, John says, no, 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 there's no need. He recognized that Jesus did not need to be baptized. He didn't need to be cleansed of sin. But Jesus said, permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now, if you're trusting that I will now explain that to you, you're out of luck. We really have no idea what that means. How Jesus' baptism fulfilled all righteousness, we're not told. Now, there, there are lots of guesses, but we don't know. All we do know for sure is that what Jesus did brought pleasure to his heavenly Father. For when he came up out of the water, the Spirit descended on him as a dove, and a voice out of heaven declared, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. We can't answer all the questions that come from this event. When it says the Spirit descended as a dove, does that mean a dove actually landed on Jesus? Or just that somehow the Spirit settled on him. And if a dove was involved, did it have special significance? Was it a, a symbol of peace like the dove that brought back the olive branch to Noah? Or a symbol of sacrifice? Picturing that Jesus would become the peace offering to be sacrificed for sin. Again, we're not told. In John's Gospel, we do read that it was a sign for John the Baptist that Jesus was the one who would baptize with the Holy Spirit. So it signified something significant to John. But no doubt there was more to it than that. But there are a lot of things 
we do understand about Jesus' baptism. But one thing we do know is that when it was over, God said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Now, the same might be said about Christian baptism as well. John's baptism and Christian baptism are are not the same thing. Christian baptism didn't begin until after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It had some symbolic ties to what John had done and what the Jews had done, but it took on new significance. And the things about it we really don't understand. They really are. You know, I really don't know why Jesus ordained it and commissioned us to practice it. But he did. He said, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And he commissioned us to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I don't fully understand the connection between repentance and baptism and the gift of the Holy Spirit. But Peter said, Repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I don't understand how being buried in water connects me with the burial of Jesus nor why being united with Him in the likeness of His death gives me the certainty that I will share in the likeness of His resurrection. But according to Romans 6, 3 through 6, it does. And I don't know how God will judge those who have confessed their sin and repented, but have never been baptized for one reason or another. Or who have been taught that the form of baptism isn't important. There are a lot of things that we just do not know. But we do know that Jesus pleased His Heavenly Father by submitting to John's baptism. And we know that we, too, can please our Heavenly Father through confession of sin. Through repentance, coming back to Him. And through baptism. I trust we all want to please our Heavenly Father. And if you need to confess your need of a Savior... Confess your belief that Jesus is the one who can save you from your sin that you are acknowledging. If you need to repent of your sin, if you need to make some changes in your behavior that indicate your faith in Christ, you need to do that. And if you need 
to be immersed into Christ. Not because you understand everything about it, but because you know it was commanded. And you want to please your Heavenly Father. I invite you to do so. I pray that you'll do so. Because doing what he has commanded us to do not only pleases him, it cleanses us and prepares the way for his coming into our life. If the way needs to be prepared in your heart for the coming of Jesus to live within you, I invite you to come right now. Let's stand.